So welcome everyone to tonight's session in our series, Field Guide for Aspiring Chaplains, uh, where tonight we're going to be discussing hospice and palliative care. We've arranged this season to be kind of sector specific. So tonight we're going to discuss hospice and palliative care. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs for the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab, and we're very happy to have you with us today. And we're also grateful uh, to the sponsors of the Field Guide series that literally make this possible. I want to thank Bayan Islamic Graduate School, Candler School of Theology at Emory University, Claremont School of Theology, Olive School of Theology, Union Theological Seminary, and then just within the past couple of days, uh, Boston College School of Theology and Ministry has joined us yeah, as a sponsor as well. So we're very happy to, to have you. I'm just watching. trying to mute everybody here. If you can mute yourself. Uh, yes, very, very We're almost there. I'm just going to hit mute a couple of times. I'm sorry. I feel so bad. All right, we really appreciate the support of all, our, of all of our sponsors and we couldn't do this without them. So let me just say a couple of words to set us up and then I'll hand it over. Uh, some of you have noticed that we are recording. So we record this, you can watch it later. That way, if you miss a point or if you have to leave, you can always come back and watch the entire thing. But I really wanna make note of that because we have the Q&A at the end of tonight's session. Uh, and so if you wanna ask a question live, you can always type a, a question in the Q&A, but if you wanna ask a question live, bear in mind that we are recording so that you will be visible and audible uh, if you choose to do that. When we send out the link to the recording, there's just a little bitty brief survey. I know that everyone has survey fatigue. I'm gonna pile on though. Please just take like two minutes to fill it out. It helps us plan future events, so thank you. With that, let me introduce tonight's speakers. Sarah Byrne Martelli is bereavement coordinator and a chaplain at Massachusetts General Hospital. Jason Callahan is chaplain at Virginia Commonwealth University Massey Cancer Center. Paul Gouchett is a research chaplain at M Health Fairview in Minnesota. He's also a Transforming Chaplaincy Fellow. And Edward Pinate is a palliative care chaplain and educator at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. We're very grateful to all of you for being with us tonight. Sarah, I turn it to you. Thank you. Um, do we have a particular set of questions that you'd like us to address? Uh, really, I think that what is most helpful is if we could just hear kind of how you ended up doing the work that you're doing and what that looks like on a daily basis. We get lots of questions from folks who, you know, they're interested in chaplaincy in general, but they don't really know what they want to do. And I think that a, a lot of that is informed by the fact that they've never seen this work being done. Uh, so just kind of give us a peek into what this job entails and how you got here. Sure. Thank you. So I was uh, board certified in 2003, three or four, and my first job just happened to be in hospice. So I started um, doing, it, it was actually a a, a well-established visiting nurse association with a new hospice program. So I was actually kind of able to start it from the ground up and learn as I went. So I was the only chaplain. I also then became the bereavement coordinator and then we grew and grew. And so um, I had to write the spiritual care documentation. I wrote all the bereavement materials and was just really trying to network. Um, there was a really great, the Hospice Federation of Massachusetts has a bunch of like chaplain networking, at least they did it time. Um, and so I was able to learn from my peers. Um, so I've been a chaplain for, you know, almost 20 years. So half the time has been in home hospice, which has given me a great sense of, you know, caring for patients at end of life, of working with my nurses and social work colleagues. Um, after that, I worked at 
NYU Medical Center as the staff chaplain there through healthcare chaplaincy. And towards the end of my time there, um, there was a pretty, palliative care was pretty, was not super integrated and very small at the time. This was 2007. Um, they did had a palliative care NP, a physician, and a social worker who was kind of the oncology social worker. So I kind of ended up inserting myself slowly into the team and just kind of crashed the team and would round with them once a week. So that way I really learned a lot more about like palliative care consults and kind of the kinds of conversations we were looking at like goals of care and decision-making and um, that, that kind of aspect of palliative care. In my current role, um, I'm the palliative care chaplain under the palliative care division at MGH, and this was a newly established role. So I work with, there's four staff social workers, many, many physicians and MPs. We have palliative care fellows who are MDs and NPs. And so um, our census, you know, can get up to about 70. So obviously I don't see everyone, but what I do is I really work based on referrals and we round every morning as a team. We talk through our patient list. Um, new referrals, new consults. We're a consult service, so um, we're not really the primary team. But when we do that, um, fortunately, this is my third year there, and I've really been able to kind of educate the team bit by bit and teach the fellows about spiritual distress, existential distress, and kind of um, really had to kind of focus where refers were coming from. So it's not just like, let's go see all the people or, or go see all these patients or this patient's very religious or this patient's not religious, but instead to really focus on, are they using language of hope and miracles? Are they have, are struggling with a new diagnosis, struggling with end of life concerns, um, religious conflict within the family, those kinds of things. And I've, I think I've, over time, I've really gotten to um, clarify that the role of the palliative care chaplain is really in those in-between places where people are kind of discerning treatment, discerning um, what's next for them and how their faith and, you know, spiritual, not religious, religious, whatever, everyone has a way of making decisions, right? Everyone has a worldview and a sense of how they make meaning. And so my role, I really see my role as integrating those concepts to support the patient and family really as part of the team. So I do a lot of joint visits, attend family meetings. Um, and it's been, it's, I mean, to be honest, it's been hard like to integrate into the team because it was just a new concept. They were not used to having an embedded chaplain. And I'm sure my colleagues who are in palliative care, you know, can, can speak to that too. Um, and so it was a lot of sort of steady, steady showing up, advocating, demonstrating, you know, what the role of chaplaincy really is. Um, and also working with my colleagues in the spiritual care department, um, cause you know, there's not that many of us, so we have to coordinate very well too. Um, so I guess hopefully that's a good start. Maybe I'll pass yeah, it to yeah. my colleagues. Well, let me ask you, uh, just briefly, you mentioned in sort of the, when we met before, uh, eight o'clock that you had just written a, a denominationally focused book. Um, tell us a little bit about how, what was your educational path before you ended up in that very first job that you had to sort of build up from there, but how did you end up doing it or what was your training up to that point? Mm -hmm. I think I was always, well, back in the day, I mean, I've always been interested in faith and grief and kind of just the life of faith, just growing up in my family, which was Catholic and Presbyterian and Jewish and evangelical and I'm Orthodox Christian. So it was like an interesting mix of faith background sort of practiced 
all quite authentically. Um, I was a religion major in college. I went to Haverford College and then um, actually wanted was thinking I wanted to be a religion professor and I went to Harvard Divinity School with the intention of doing the MTH, MTS there. Um, but then when I was there, I took my first unit of CPE. And once I got into CPE, I was like, boom, this is this is where I'm called to be. And also I realized I'm maybe not like a super academic like religion person. Um, and so I switched to the MDiv, took more like chaplaincy counseling courses, uh, grief and loss, like trauma, um, all those kinds of courses. And then I went right into a CPE residency in Boston. And then um, I went right into my first chaplain position. So I was kind of like, I kind of did like a very like straight, you know, trajectory into it. But I will say, my my grief and loss training has just been gained over time through doing the job, doing trainings, attending webinars, that kind of stuff. So I wasn't I would not say I was an expert in that area at all. Um, but I tried to just like go to conferences and really learn by doing more about grief. And that's what I wrote my book about. Recently, I did a doctor of ministry. Um, so I wrote a book about uh, grief and bereavement. Thank you. All right, Jason, I'm going to pass the task to you. A brief history of Jason Callahan from education to today. Can you hear me? Perfect now. Oh, good to see everyone. So I did not follow a direct path to chaplaincy. It was interesting because um, I actually was working in advertising in New York City, but I had a palliative care experience when my grandmother was dying. So it was just one of these experiences where I, I interacted with the chaplain and, you know, I just kind of became aware that there was something else out there. I always had a pastoral identity, but as a humanist, I wasn't religious. So it didn't really make sense for me to go to seminary in order to become a pastor or anything like that. Even though I, I grew up Presbyterian uh, by my family, I myself had never really accepted, you know, that faith uh, for something that was going to be my way of life. Um, but I did see the value in a lot of pastoral ministries. And so it really intrigued me. And when I decided to get out of advertising, the pastor at the church that I did attend growing up, mentioned that I had a call, or at least what she thought was a calling, even though she knew I was humanist. Um, but fortunately, the seminary I went to had a, a trial year where you kind of go to seminary, see if it's something you want, of a scholarship program. And I ended up staying because I started realizing that there might be a path for chaplaincy for me. So I went to seminary, I completed that, and immediately after that came to VCU, where I'm currently employed, and did my CPE program. I did my internship there. I immediately went into a residency. Um, and then after that, I became a what's called a PRN chaplain, which is you're not on the staff full time, but they call you if they need you to fill in. And what the PRN position did is it really allowed me to experience a lot of the different specialties that chaplains will work in. And one of the major ones that I was working in was palliative care, which I told you I already had a palliative experience in the past. Um, but because I was doing a lot of overnight work, I would be on palliative care a lot. 
there's something called the wolf hour, right? Where it's like babies are born and also a lot of people die. Um, and I just happened to be a chaplain who was always in the house when I was, people were dying. So I got exposed a lot. I developed a strong relationship with the chaplain who was the palliative care chaplain at the time. And it was just a kind of a natural transition as he, he did a, uh, his fellowship actually with the transforming chaplaincy as well. Um, he did a fellowship uh, and I slid into the position that he had, um, became full-time palliative care chaplain. Um, of course, I mean, it, I still work there today because I have a, a big passion for it. Um, it was interesting uh, for me because uh, it, a little bit different, I think, than what Sarah has. We have a consult service. A lot of palliative care uh, teams actually are a consult-based service, which means that they're going to see patients all over the hospital. And we have that, but we're fortunate that in addition to that, we have an inpatient palliative care unit where there's 11 beds. So it's a little different. Um, a lot of times when people come from the consult service, they could get put directly in the palliative care unit, which really gives us the opportunity to do some more advanced interventions. Uh, palliative care, because it could be added on to a lot of different services. Um, it gives you an opportunity to provide chaplaincy at an earlier point. So I think it's really cool because you can enhance the spiritual dynamic of people's lives. And that goes whether they're religious or not. They can be humanists like myself, um, various belief systems, philosophies, but they can benefit from palliative care. In addition to that, I think that palliative care is one of those special things because, um, and spe specifically chaplaincy, because you know that that's going to be the one, one of the dimensions of their life that they're going to uphold and really, um, they're really going to seek chaplain support. If you're dealing with traumas and different things like that, sometimes palliative care could come into play. You might see the chaplain, but a lot of times people aren't really expecting um, chaplains to be there. But if you're expecting someone to die, then you have a, a prolonged time, um, hopefully, from the time they get diagnosed until they do pass away. VCU is also really cool because our, our Massey Cancer Center does have an outpatient clinic as well. So when people actually get diagnosed, we can really start seeing them a lot earlier on. So whether they're dealing with cancer for 10 years or just one year, it allows us to get integrated earlier on. So people are not afraid of the chaplain. I think it's really cool because it really allows us to do some advanced interventions as well. Um, so we have a pretty good program where you can see people outpatient. They come into the critical care hospitals and then they, um, once they get to the point where they want to focus on comfort measures, they can get, then go straight to the palliative care unit. One of the other cool bridges is palliative is used um, a lot of times as a step to hospice. So a lot of people want to actually die at home around the people that they love. Uh, and here at VCU, we have the palliative care unit that also has what's called general inpatient hospice. And that's where we have a hospice agency that we partner with, um, where they can have additional hospice services actually served on the unit. And a lot of times that serves as a bridge for that same hospice agency to provide hospice services when they get home. And that's a real benefit because hospice gives you like 13 months of bereavement support, which is one of the other benefits, like Sarah was saying, because the bereavement issues really is a community issue. Um, the people that are left behind when a loved one dies, they, they need support afterwards. And that actually affects how they experience 
uh, future healthcare and then future people and their family dying again, just those experiences. So if you have really good bereavement support, um, it, can, it can then actually help them have good deaths whenever the a death is coming again in the future. So that's one of the reasons why I love it because it's completely um, integrated from every step of you know, admission and initial diagnosis all the way through bereavement. Uh, I don't know, do you have any other questions maybe you'll, you'll want me to answer? <laughs> I'm sure those will sort of surface as we continue. So thank you, Jason. And I really appreciate we went in a lot of ways from one end of the spectrum to the other, where Sarah had this very traditional straight through denominational, boom, you're a chaplain. Jason, humanist, not, you couldn't even really call it a path. It just sort of happened. Uh, but the point is, there is no one way into chaplaincy. There are as many paths into it as there are people as kind of, you know, Heady as that sounds, I think it's really true. Thank you, Jason. Paul, same question to you. Tell us your story. Cool, thanks, Michael. I hope the suspense wasn't killing everybody. Hi, everybody, my name is Paul Galshud. I am uh, sort of the imposter here in some ways because I, got to be a inpatient palliative care chaplain for about 10 years. I'm not technically doing that. Um, that's kind of like, I guess, my foreshadowing. Uh, just, I think it start with education and kind of build into that. So in seminary, I think, I don't know if they still call it this way today, but I was a pipeliner, came right out of college, went right into um, seminary. And my background is I'm a Lutheran pastor. And if you care about all the little rabbit trails of Christianity. I'm an evangelical Lutheran church in America, pastor and have been since I was 26 years old, which was just a couple of years ago. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, okay, so <laughs> yeah, what happened was during my uh, years of seminary, I got introduced to hospice palliative care because I was a hospice chaplain during my vicarage or my internship. and kind of fell in love with it and was able to do a couple of visits with people and it, and it was moving to me in that experience. Like Sarah, uh, in the Lutheran tradition, you have to do a unit of clinical pastoral education before you can enter into becoming a pastor. So kind of got the bug, got hooked. And in the Lutheran tradition, you have to, if you're going the um, pastor ordination route, you have to do at least three years in the congregation. I like the congregation, so I did it for a while came out and um, after seven years, I went into a chaplain residency so I could knock out the rest of the units that I needed to become a chaplain. So I did that in the Chicago area. Um, I'm originally from Minnesota. My first chaplain job was in Milwaukee in a Catholic healthcare system. Did that for three years. I was also a bereavement coordinator. Um, I think Sarah does some of that. And then also I am, um, I was a critical incident stress management coordinator and that's not something we're going to talk about, but that's important in terms of uh, staff support, especially with all the Sentinel events that have been happening these days. My joke is that I keep following Highway 94. If you're familiar with the Midwest, I went Chicago to Milwaukee, and um, I had to leave all the good custard in Milwaukee and came back to Minnesota. And so here I've been for about, I don't know, maybe 15 years now. And that's where I became a palliative care chaplain. It was half my job and I was half staff chaplain job. And that's another thing I think that's pretty interesting is that there are so many different models for how um, Edward at Northwestern is a chaplain, Sarah um, out in Massachusetts, Jason at VCU, and all of our colleagues that um, it's just really interesting. 
And then um, 10 years into it, this thing called transforming chaplaincy happened and I got a chance to go back to school, got a master's in public health where it taught me research skills. So my line is, even though I've technically left the bedside of palliative care, it's never left me. So now uh, Transforming Chaplaincy was a grant funded organization. It's now continuing on. And there's something called the Hospice Palliative Spiritual Care Research Network. We'd love to have you join. There's about 800 of us now that are a part of it. And um, Edward, Jason, and Sarah are part of it. In fact, Sarah just became our new moderator of a special interest group for inpatient um, palliative care. So, so delighted to say that out loud here. I better stop talking there. I could keep going, but that's some, that's some background. Um, Thank you very much, Paul. And I really would encourage everyone to check out uh, Transforming Chaplaincy, check out the research that they sort of highlight that the networks are promoting. Uh, even if you're not a chaplain, even if you're just getting interested in this, to see what types of things the field is studying and how it approaches these questions from a, a scientific perspective, I think is really helpful. Uh, it, it gives you an entirely new perspective on how chaplains think about this work and how they can improve their work. Thank you, Paul. All right, Edward, we've saved the best for last. Tell us your story, please. Hi, can everyone hear me? That's a lot of pressure, Michael. Um, <laughs> um, so my name is Edward Peñate. I'm a palliative care chaplain at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, and that is the uh, sister organization with um, Northwestern University. And we're located in downtown Chicago. And my hospital setting is a 900 bed trauma level one hospital. And as uh, Paul, Paul mentioned, and I think as we were listening to Sarah and Jason's uh, explanation of their settings that uh, the model of palliative care at our institution is primarily an inpatient, is both inpatient and outpatient. My setting as a palliative care chaplain, although it takes me in both settings of inpatient, outpatient, uh, most of my time is dedicated to the inpatient setting, right? But um, stepping back about how I got to, to palliative care, I think one, I wanna mention that I came from 15 years of congregational ministry uh, before I came into the healthcare context. And so uh, about 10 years ago, what was introduced to me was uh, an experience to, to do work in the prison setting, in the state prison of the state of Illinois. And so there with a colleague who was uh, a staff chaplain there with a bit of CPE training uh, under his belt, uh, really uh, worked with me very closely. And he, that was the first experience I had with uh, chaplaincy work, right, in the prison cell. And I think from his influence, that experience was just aligning well with what I came to identify about myself, about my gifts and my leanings and my preferences of what type of work I wanted to devote myself to. And so out of that, uh, there was this curiosity that I wanted to explore and affirm and confirm. And if this was the shift that, was, uh, that I was wanting to make at that point of time. And so at that time I did the prison uh, chaplaincy work as a volunteer <laughs> for about three years, 
and then I pursued a CPE experience, a clinical pastoral education experience at Northwestern Memorial uh, Hospital because that's where I live and I continue living here. And so I, it began with an internship uh, for me. So I do wanna highlight that as, my, as I would talk about my training uh, background to become a palliative care uh, practitioner uh, is that it had a foundation of CPE training and it began with CPE internship, which moved forward into uh, a residency. What I would like to highlight about the residency for me was that the residency offers an, a full-time sample of experience uh, as a clinical practitioner. And so it's uh, as if you're working and you're considered a full-time employee for that institution, wherever you do the residency. And that, that residency for me, which is a combination of one internship and three units of CPE, so a total of four uh, units of CPE was the core foundation that I can identify that uh, was the grounding, the foundation that I had to start with and that I, I consider it necessary to the evolution of my training and even my practice today. And so for me, residency was also a key opportunity for me to experience different, different sample settings within the clinical context. And so you get a, for me in my setting, it, I was offered a transplant service type of experience for a period of time, an oncology service. And because I'm bilingual English, Spanish speaking, it opened up other opportunities. And so for me during my residency, gave me a lot of opportunities to work with palliative care team at Northwestern from beginning residency. Not all the time, but it, I did follow the same patients that were from the Latinx community. And so that piqued my curiosity about what is this? Because at that time I was uh, unfamiliar with what that is. <clears throat> and so for me that, that began to pique a curiosity of what this is and explore more. And then when I wanted to understand more, uh, the palliative care team was just so available and so generous with me. And I'm not talking about other chaplains, I'm talking about physicians, APNs, social workers, et cetera. And they were just so generous to share more about what this as, is as a specialty service. And so um, after my, my residency, there was a, an opportunity offered and so I was invited to form part of the palliative care team at Northwestern. And so I went into this straight into residency. Here is where I wanna distinguish a little bit of my ongoing training because after I completed my CPE training, um, which was essential, one of, the, one of the tracks that I was pursuing was board certification with uh, Association of Professional Chaplains. And so that's one consideration that I wanna highlight that as I was doing this work already, my, my pursuit was also to become a board certified chaplain. The other, the other piece was that I was on the job trained uh, to become a palliative care specialist, right? And, and I say that a palliative care specialist, one of the things in the job training was to also own that identification, that identity as a palliative care provider. In other words, I do have a specialty and that's spiritual care, but we all claim an identity as palliative care members as a palliative care provider. And so that had implications for my training as well. 
I was no longer going to be exclusively a spiritual care specialist. But now I have this identity and this, I was owning this new role as a palliative care provider. And so on the job training, uh, which was in the context of a very invested and generous team, uh, they, I learned with them, right? Yeah, and sure, there was, a, as on the job training, you, you have moments of uh, feeling stretched, right? I'm not too familiar with this work. I have not done this before. And, and there's those growing moments. <clears throat> but for me, what I became after a while assessing my own developmental needs, I started identifying what do, where am I at with becoming a specialized advanced level training as a palliative care practitioner? And how does that look like for me moving forward here? And so that also involved, aside from the on-job training, that was a major element of my advanced training, but that also brought in other curiosities and plans to further train. And so, for example, one of the specialty areas of palliative medicine is how to facilitate complex uh, communication and medical decision-making. And so a lot of the palliative care practitioners have advanced training and communication skill training, and that's sought out in various ways. One of those ways is PaliTalk, VitalTalk, and so that was part of our, our my, my training as, uh, as to become a palliative care practitioner. The other, once you, you see in a clinical setting, um, one of the things that I found necessary was, again, to pursue advanced training, even as a spiritual care, as a spiritual care specialist, but also as a palliative care specialist in that that means I have to do assessments outside the scope of just spiritual care domains, but I had to do assessments of uh, symptom management and ethical uh, aspects, et cetera. And so I had to pursue advanced training and there's various uh, trainings offered by different institutions like George Washington, CSU uh, and other places where they can train you to become uh, skilled in those areas to become for example, uh, competent in doing pain and symptom assessments as a generalist, not as a physician, because that's not what I'm claiming in my role, but as a generalist in the sense that I can ask those good, good questions so that I can coordinate with my team uh, about the needs in the clinical setting, right? So the, as I was getting this experience, I also saw so many collaborations going on in the palliative care team. And one that we all do is we educate, right? Uh, we educate, we learn as an interdisciplinary team, but we also are educators for the broader community, not just NMH, but broader community. And so that, that is a passion of mine also, an identity as an educator. And so I pursued um, advanced training and uh, education about learning theory and, and for specifically in the clinical context, right? So, so this led me to another major piece of my contributions and trainings and research. And because part of my, my leanings is to do a lot of research about spiritual care training for non-chaplain clinicians, right? And so a lot of my work has been done with palliative care physician fellows right, about building competencies for them to become spiritual care generalists, right? And 
And so the, these are, as I, I said this, that I'm, I was assessing where I needed to develop more. This is actually an ongoing work that I do, you know, not every single month, but at certain moments, at certain key moments, what, what do I need to do here moving forward about getting better at these certain domains, certain realms of the expertise as a palliative care practitioner, right? So that's my story. Thank you very much, Edward. Um, and someone, I, I wanna clarify very quickly, there was a question um, and I suggested holding the question for breakout groups. Um, I don't think I said that at the beginning, but we have breakout groups at nine o'clock. Uh, if you would like, we turn the recording off and then you can have a little, a little bit of a, a more intimate conversation. So uh, that's a good time for like really specific questions. So thank, thank, uh, thanks to all four of you. I think that we see a real diversity in paths into this work and the type of work that you do on a daily basis, but there are some general themes that are common from place to place. One thing that I wanna ask uh, right at the outset before we get to some other questions, we titled this session Hospice and Palliative Care. Uh, not the same thing, we're talking about them in the same conversation, but they're not the same thing. Uh, I think I want to ask Sarah in particular, because you have mentioned specific roles. I was in hospice, then I'm in palliative care. So what is the quickest way to distinguish these two and what, what sets them apart from one another? Thanks. Um, the quickest way would be that palliative care is a big umbrella and hospice is a subset within palliative care. So palliative care is multidisciplinary interprofessional care for patients and families facing serious illness. That's sort of the quickest. It's an extra layer of support, as we like to say. Um, so it can be patients who are oncology patients, heart failure, transplant. I mean, any number of types of diagnoses. Um, it, it sort of grew out of, I think, mostly oncology care, but now has really broadened into really every type of diagnosis. Hospice specifically um, is Care for patients if um, care for patients with any type of diagnosis. They qualify with very specific um, medical qualifications. It's a Medicare benefit, and um, another insurances cover hospice um, uh, care if you meet particular criteria. And hospice um, diagnosis uh, indicates that if your disease progressed as expected, you would um, have a six months or less die uh, six months or less to live. Now that said, sometimes, you know, you, you don't get kicked off after six months, of course, you can re-qualify if your illness is progressing and needs the layer of support that hospice provides. So one thing that's really interesting about hospice is just in terms of being a chaplain is that it's actually a Medicare reg regulation uh, for chaplains to do an assessment of patients and families within five days of admission. Now, of course, they can always say no thanks or you know they don't have to see the chaplain, but it's built into the system to have a social work assessment, to perhaps have a volunteer, obviously to have a nursing in, in, in nursing support and to have a spiritual assessment. So it's actually, it, it's a really interesting place to be a chaplain because you really are part of it. Palliative care more broadly in a hospital setting or an outpatient setting, um, may eventually, as Jason indicated, you may at some point, your palliative care patients may be appropriate for hospice, both medically appropriate and also appropriate in terms of their goals of care. They're not seeking, uh, for example, cancer-directed treatment or curative treatment anymore, 
but we don't stop treatment. And that's a really important thing to talk about. There's all this language around like fighting and giving up and, you know, giving in and all, all this kind of stuff you hear a lot about when patients are faced with third, fourth rounds of chemotherapy, for example. But instead, it's more just kind of a shift towards focusing on comfort-focused care. Um, and palliative care, you can be pursuing palliative care to support your symptoms, nausea, pain, obviously, psychosocial stuff, spiritual issues. All those things can be concurrent with potentially curative or sort of life-lengthening treatment. You can have those at the same time. Um, but hospice really is a more of a turn towards focusing on end of life care. And that may be for three weeks or it might be for two years, um, but it's really companioning patients and families as the center of that care. I also wanna mention uh, back in January, we did a webinar called palliative care and the patient perspective. And so folks, if you're interested in this, you might wanna go and watch that as well. We have a good discussion there on how uh, hospice sometimes gets lumped in with palliative care in the sort of the cultural mind. Uh, but as Sarah has indicated, that is clearly not the case. Uh, okay, so I want to open the floor to some other questions. Uh, we have a couple already, so I'll, I'll start asking those, and then we'll get as many of them as we as we can. Uh, Sarah, since you answered that question, I'll direct this elsewhere. Uh, maybe I'll direct this to Paul. We use a lot of terms in this world that are that sort of come natural to chaplains or those of us who work with chaplains, but they are they're actually very highly defined. Uh, so the first question we got is, what is the difference between a chaplain residency and being a chaplain in CPE? Good question. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. I don't think any of us are ACPE or Association of Clinical Pastoral Education Educators. So um, I think you picked that makes I'm, I'm the oldest, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this joke. So I've been around for a while, but um, there are in larger CPE programs, they have sort of a mix and match way of approaching this. For a lot of us in our seminary traditions, or Jason's story is really cool and how he kind of kind of stumbled into this by life. But um, a lot of us get into it from a first unit or what they often call level one. You can be somewhere like living in you know, Lexington, Kentucky, and if you got access to a CPE program and you're still like a pastor in a congregation, you can do CPE for like some programs have like six to eight month programs where you have um, kind of some call it extended units. But the key thing is you're doing it as a level two student. So you might do it over four years. But some of us, I think most of us also, we did a residency where you have a chance to do it in a condensed form. We don't really have any data that tell us that that's a better format versus you know doing it in a compact way for like a year versus extending it out um, over like a course of like four years. So I hope that I hope that helps answer the question. The key thing is your first unit is always like level one, and then you hope there's subsequent units after that are what they call level two, kind of show you are a more advanced um, person learning the competencies. Thank you. And I'm glad that you mentioned ACPE. Again, when you are in this world all, all the time, you don't even think about this, but folks do check them out, acpe.edu. Uh, this will tell you everything you need to know about, about CPE. Uh, plenty of resources out there for that. And we can always help you if, you if you need more information. Jason, I wanna direct this question to you that has to do with traits that are critical to this work 
may be helpful. Uh, and these can be innate, but you can also foster them as well. So what do you need to be a chaplain that you can't learn in the classroom? Can you hear me? All right. Uh, so, so for me, I think everyone is kind of working on something. I think we all have different skill sets coming into chaplaincy where when you do your units of CPE, it's really going to help you sharpen those things. For me specifically, um, one of the things that I think has been most beneficial as far as the skill to have is just uh, the ability, ability to be resilient. As a, a chaplain, you never really know what you're walking into. You try to inform yourself as much as possible, either uh, reviewing chart notes, uh, preparing yourself with information that other people have picked up, especially working in palliative care, because a lot of times you'll be working with patients who have already seen other chaplains when they were under other specialty services. Um, but just being able to be resilient, to be able to hold that space and allow people to be able to have their own experiences while also uh, being able to just continue uh, being present with people is important. Uh, one of the other things that you have to do, and I think that Edward really alluded to this, is develop your communication skills as well. Um, the, I think Ariadne Labs is another uh, place that has some, some uh, communication development skills. And, and most palliative care programs will already say, hey, you have to focus on some of these things. And communication is one of the big things because sometimes we have to have uh, conversations, go, what we call goals of care conversations, where it's not just the medical, but it's being able to listen and, and convey information in a way that allows people to process appropriately so that they can then make decisions. Uh, one of the, the places that I think people can really go to develop some of their pre-palliative skills is if you go to the uh, CAPSI, I think it's CAPSI.org is the website, um, and they will have some modules that you can actually do that will highlight a lot of um, the necessary skills that palliative care chaplains will need. And if you have, uh, say for instance, if you're in a CPE program that your host hospital is uh, a member of CAPSI, you can access this and it should be paid for for you if you actually use your email address. So I'd say, you know, go check that out. That's the Center to Advance Palliative Care. Um, but I guess we could put a uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for putting that link in there. And that'll really point you to some, uh, some of the other things that help educate you to, to head into this, this field. Thank you very much, Jason. I have a question that I would like to hear everybody's perspective, but it might take a moment to think about. So I'm gonna ask the question and then I'm gonna to turn to Edward on a very specific one to give everyone else some time to think. Uh, I would like to know, and this, this is a question that was in chat, the most rewarding part of your job and the most challenging part of your job that you wanna discuss publicly. So to give you time to think of that, Edward, I'm gonna ask you this very specific question. This person says that they're about to begin a residency at a certain hospital uh, and it provides a palliative care specialty. Does this type of training translate to different institutions? That's a really good question. So you go through this training at one place and you have this, you know, you know ribbon that you wear. Can you then take that somewhere else typically in the industry, so to speak? That's a really good question. It's very subjective, just like every institution and CPE program. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, uh, 
offering that they do with CPE. CPE is, uh, is sub they do have a shared uh, document references about their, their goals with the CPE, but it, it really is shaped by the institution. So I don't know much about that program. And, and so one of the things that is very important, and I've had this conversation at different po points is, is how important it is to learn in the context of palliative care with palliative care specialists, including palliative care chaplains, palliative care social workers, palliative care team. And when, when that is not done in those ways or facilitated where, uh, where you're practicing this work with other specialists in this field, it, I think it's different, right? Uh, I wonder, I often wondered how those skills will evolve and competencies will evolve, right? And so I do not know uh, much about this program, but those are things to consider. So I know that's not, uh, so that will matter, right? And it will show up in clinical practice <laughs> when you go anywhere, right? Uh, so for example, um, and you know, and I, I'm very sensitive to what you can, what a learner can achieve in one year residency or even two. I mean, I, I've been doing this for, in palliative care for four, five years and I'm still learning. Right, I'm still learning my craft, right? And I, I try to own that humility in the sense to keep me very curious and moving and progressing forward, right? And so, but again, regarding that training program, I, I do not know, I can't comment further. So it'd be a great question to ask uh, the program itself about who leads it, right? And what does that experience of a specialty training look like for that context, right? Well, and I think it's important to note that no matter what any given program might be called, whatever institution is, the being able to summarize the content, outcomes, learning goals, whatever, is kind of a way of getting around that. You know, does this particular program translate to another institution? Well, who knows? But if you can say, I have learned and practiced X, Y, and Z for the past however many years, that gets you around that problem of, of being able to identify this program. All right, so you've had some time to think. We'll just go alphabetically down the list. Most rewarding aspect of this work, most challenging. Sarah. Well, actually what's, well, I would say the most rewarding aspect of this work is, I feel like this, it's, I'm, I'm verklempt. You know, being being able to be with patients and families in a, an in difficult, serious illness situations where there can be lots of pain and suffering, and being able to be part of a team that really seeks to have clear communication, honest communication about what's really going on, to meet people where they are, and to hold that with them in a way that you know alleviates some suffering. Or if it doesn't alleviate it, at least it we can talk about it honestly. What's going on? Um, I mean, there's so many sacred moments that are so beautiful in caring for patients with serious illness as they discern, you know, their life path, their meaning making, the way that they process their faith, the way that they think about their family and and their you know life in this world. Um, 
what does it mean for your life to, to be drawing to a close, to be complete and to really be with patients who can experience peace at end of life and to witness that and to know that you're part of a team that's really facilitating that using these skills that everyone is so well has, has spoke about so well. It's, it's just really an honor to be doing it truly. Um, and it's especially good to be doing it as part of a team, like to be in a joint visit, to be in a family meeting where, you know, sometimes people's decision-making really does come from their spiritual and existential way of looking at the world. And so to be in a family meeting where they're like, oh, they won't make a decision. They want a miracle. And the, you know, the doctor and this and that. And it's like, I've gotten to know the patient and family. Even if we don't necessarily share the same viewpoint or same meaning making, I can, I understand where they're coming from. I can connect with them using their language and their, and their frame of thinking about the world. And so in establishing trust, in understanding their process and in, in understanding kind of the barriers to making that decision, you know, if they feel like they're playing God or they feel like they're giving up a lot of, to, to be able to name that as the chaplain and like really to do that confidently and compassionately within the team, which has taken me time to get there. Like, to be clear, I did not launch into this being able to do, but, um, but to be able to, to have that experience in a family meeting where, you know, something shifts and it really is because of that trusting chaplaincy relationship that you have with the family, that is really rewarding. And I'd like to think that, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, right? But when there's moments like that, that happen in a medical meeting with, you know, the neuro-oncologist and the social worker and the nurse and the family and all your team members, they're witnessing the, what it really is to do actual interprofessional patient-centered care. Um, and so it's beautiful to be a part of that. The flip side, the hardest part I would say is, um, truthfully, I think, dealing with many conceptions and stereotypes of what chaplaincy is over the many years I've done this. I mean, my first job in hospice actually was really great because I did work closely with nurses and social workers, but they also expected me to like be on call all the time. Now, would they ever ask a nurse to just be on call all the time? No, but they asked the chaplain because it's a calling, you know, but you know, this is my first job and I'm like, uh, you know, so over time I had to learn how to sort of articulate what we do as a professional thing. Yes, it's a calling and that's the palliative care and yes, it's a calling and it's my professional skill set that I offer. And so to integrate into the team and to really like challenge, you know, we don't just go in and hold hands, you know, why would they pay me to do that anyways? Right. But, but instead we bring a particular skill set. And so I still, you know, constantly, we still get, you know, oh, they're really religious. Can you go do a little prayer? Which is fine. Of course I can do a prayer for a religious person, but that is not, that's not a person in spiritual distress. They might be fine. They have their priests. They, they watch the Catholic mass on TV. They're good. The, the people that really need spiritual support, right, are the ones who are struggling and suffering that we can sit with, it does, religious or non-religious. Um, and so having to constantly explain that and advocate that and embody that all the time, can sometimes be tiring, <laughs> but so that's the hardest part, but it matters and, you know, showing up and showing up and showing up. I also think, you know, over time, these things change. It's not the death and dying. That's the hardest aspect, truthfully, for me, it's really not, it's, this is part of life. Um, but it, it's, it's the evolving role of chaplaincy 
which I, I think is it is such an exciting time. It's a really exciting time to be a chaplain. Thank you. And I think we're seeing a, a theme across everybody here of uh, constantly learning, constantly developing, constantly evolving. Chaplaincy is not like um, accounting. I'm going to get emails about this ragging on accountants. But, you know, there is no one body of knowledge that if you just learn it all, now I'm, a, I'm fully a chaplain. No, no. It's going to change every day, every year. And you're going to grow into it as you, as you keep doing that work. Thank you, Sarah. Jason, for you, the most rewarding, the most challenging aspects of this work. Oh, goody. All right. So for me, I'm a bit of a chaplain nerd, right? I, I just, I love chaplaincy. I think that, especially as a humanist, right? Because I don't really rely on that, that pastoral thing. I think chaplains can, we can be people in people's lives that can unleash all kinds of possibilities, right? I think chaplains are just a great thing for people to have in general. Everyone should have one. That said, one of the things that I love about it is when we do this the right way, we can promote a beautiful death, right? And I'm speaking specifically end of life. You know, we know palliative care can get integrated in all kinds of services, but just thinking about end of life and what that means for life in general for most people, because it's such a taboo thing. We don't really talk about it unless it's happening. And then it's, it's this thing where you really don't want to address it because it kind of affects everything. But when you have, as a, a family, as a collective, a beautiful death, what I've seen that do for families, the kind of healing it provides, and that's inclusive of the bereavement care, it enhances their life in a way that is profound to me. And it changes the way that you experience, you know, future kind of medical issues. It changes the way that you uh, go about your interactions with your loved ones because you understand the complexity of that a lot of times. So when people are close enough to it, I've seen it, it do some absolutely amazing things. So I love the beautiful death. It's very rewarding. That said, at the same time, when we don't do it the right way, it's really rough because we create a lot of issues. And a lot of times that's because of the healthcare systems. You know, it, it may be due to people's beliefs where maybe they're pushing too hard to, to have more life rather than have, her, have a better quality of life. Um, but when chaplains are involved in some serious healthcare uh, issues earlier on, it allows people to then make better decisions. So it, it allows the system to actually give them what they need, what they desire in a better way. But unfortunately, when we don't do it the right way, we can see some really ugly things. And unfortunately, we all too often get involved later on in the process and it doesn't allow for the families and those left behind to, to have that good experience of a death. Um, so there are some things in the systems that we can clean up a little better, I think. Um, and for me, that's the most frustrating thing, because I think people actually deserve to have um, good end of life experiences for their loved ones. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Paul, how about you? Yeah, I don't know if uh, I do appreciate what Jason and Sarah have already said, and I'm looking forward to what Edward has to say. So I hope it builds on it. And I kind of live by the phrase that we are who we hang around with. So in palliative care, that is the best way to learn how to do this. There are some great courses that I put in the chat from the California State University, and it gives us some great propositional knowledge things. But I don't know if the panelists would also agree. There's just something about you go to rounds every day and you learn terms like scopolamine and ketamine and, you know, verset. And, uh, but you also learn this stuff around 
how we talk. You also get to learn how we support one another. And uh, that is incredibly rewarding. My favorite moment was hanging out with a blood marrow transplant patient and doing a ritual before they got their uh, transplant, a Jewish palliative physician, a Christian um, nurse practitioner, and the couple, the guy having the transplant was Jewish. Um, his wife was Christian. And we kind of did this like mishmashy, you know, I mean, it was awesome. People were crying and it was, and I think this is, I don't know if the other panelists would agree. To me, the, the fleece that I'm after is healing. Healing for them, healing for me. Um, it's just absurd and BS to think that we're uh, people who can control our emotions and palliative people get that. People who are drawn to this work, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the social workers, they're folks that they could have been the interventional radiologists. They could have been, you know, um, the coroner, but they wanted to be the they wanted to be the people that hung out, got to hear stories. The thing that's most challenging, I would say, is is this, and I think it's um, Sarah, Edward, and Jason all are kind of drawn to the stuff around being nerds and um, researchy. Uh, we're a strange breed in the palliative care world. We're sort of like um, we're, the, we're yeah we're the we're the I don't know we're we know there's some data that we're harder to understand. We talk in code languages. Some of the data tells us so. Uh, Perhaps for me and the rest of my career, I'm kind of drawn to this. What does it mean to help the work we do be translated? Because the people we work with say, we like what you do and keep doing that. But like, we don't always understand what you tell us, how you do what you do. So anyway, that thanks very much, Michael, and to the panelists. I think it's, it's really important to be aware of that uh, for folks that are interested in chaplaincy as a, a career, a calling, a vocation. You are going to spend a lot of time explaining what it is that you do, no matter where you work, whether it's hospice and palliative care, you know, elsewhere in a healthcare system, outside of healthcare, uh, but we hear this all the time. Uh, it's, it's a real challenge, but it's also a moment for education as well. All right, Edward, close out this round of questions, the most challenging and most rewarding parts of your work. The most rewarding, meaningful part is uh, what Paul was mentioning. I, I find it very enriching to work in the context of a team and not in a silo, I'm not alone. But I do this work with lovely, amazing human beings that are not all chaplains, they're physicians, social workers, uh, nurses, etc. And as Paul was describing this is just where we can be very real with each other. We cry, we laugh a lot, we use humor and to, to be able to have a community so intimate and so uh, much part of me and me part of them is it's a beautiful experience uh, that I've never experienced in the context of other work settings, right? And to do this as a team to come alongside other human beings in very challenging moments to try to understand them and accompany them and uh, be their allies, right? And and have as much as that is possible improve their quality of life, that's, that's awesome for me, right? That, that makes me return every day, wake up, right? Wanting to do what I, and love what I do every day, right? Um, there's other aspects of what's meaningful, but I think I wanna raise that, right? That, that's probably number one, right? Um, the, the challenging, um, uh, it's subjected to the season. <laughs> and so I say this, uh, I would, and 
this gives me the opportunity of what is challenging year one in palliative medicine, right? It makes me think about what you're exposed uh, to in high frequency, and that's that you're exposed to death and dying a lot. And so I think not just for chaplains, but many palliative care practitioners, this experiencing death and dying a lot prompts a lot for you inside your humanity, right? It makes you think about your own death and dying, the death and dying of your loved ones. And, and so I, I say that because as you're entering this, this is, we, I wanna say that this is an experience that many talk about, right? How do I do that? You know, how do I deal with it? What is going on inside of me? And although this is not formal training to work on this, right? Part of what we did as a team and what was recommended for me to deal with those challenges was uh, to do psychoanalysis, and I did, right? And in other words, I was responding to certain needs of my own humanity, right? And so I, I say that because I, I forgot to mention that in the beginning, but I think one of the things that I, that I want to identify as, as the most challenging thing today, um, and probably through, through my experience in chaplaincy has been about policy and advocacy for our, our work, right? Um, there's many barriers institutionally, you know, and I, I don't live and work to try to uh, deal with the higher ups and advocacy, but I know that that is part of our, our work. The admin, uh, the advocacy for our work to the higher ups, right? Um, that, that, that can be daunting at times. It's challenging, but it's a much necessary type of work too, so. Thank you. Thank you very much, all of you. Uh, we're right here at the top of the hour, so we're going to switch to, you'll have the chance to do a small group discussion, if you'd like, uh, with one of our guests, just until 9.30. So I will open the breakout rooms, and each of our guests will be in one of those breakout rooms, and then you can choose one as you like, or you can jump around, whatever you want to do. So I'm going to do that. We'll stop the recording.